Welcome to the Wildlife Health Talks. This is our fifth episode introducing WDA members in their amazing work all over the world. We are still surrounded by the lush rainforest of King Lake Adventure Camp in Victoria, Australia, where the annual conference of the Australasian WDA is taking place. I'm your host Kat. I'm a vet, wildlife researcher and science communicator based at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. My guest today is Mel Wells. Mel is a PhD candidate at the University of Tasmania and she studies the levels of certain pollutants in little penguins. For her studies, she has sampled penguins all over the coast of Tasmania. Welcome to the show, Mel. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Mel, please tell me, when did you join the WDA? Um, I joined when I started my PhD, which was a couple of years ago. My supervisor um, is Scott Carver, and he has been a member of WDA for a long time. So he was really encouraging to join. So this is my first WDA conference at the moment, which is very exciting. That's very exciting indeed. Yes. So what do you like about the WDA? Oh, it's such a beautiful community. I mean, obviously I've only been associated with the Australasian contingent, but um such a down-to-earth, approachable um, group of people and people just don't have egos, which is very rare in academia. So, yeah, great people. <laughs> That's awesome. Do you ever, well, you said you only joined fairly recently, but do you still have a favourite memory that's linked to the WDA? That is um, a great question. Well, uh, I mean, this whole conference has been such an eye-opener in terms of uh, how other academic conferences compare, just in, due to the wonderful community. What is it community. Yeah. It's just such a lovely community. But um, I think the auction night last night that we had is this silent auction that happens every year, which is a fundraiser for the students. It was a lot of fun. Did you get anything fun? I did. I got a T-shirt with a penguin on it. And there was a very um, like lively battle to get that shirt between me and another student, but I won it, and uh, and I got some coffee. But it was a lot of fun. That was definitely the oh, best. You got memory. that good coffee. Yeah, from the three bags. Yeah, amazing. Oh, lucky. Well, oh, well done. It is. It is a battle usually. <laughs> Let's get to your research. So you are working on a certain type of pollutant. Um, tell us a bit more about it. What is it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so the the group of chemicals that I am looking at, I'm investigating in penguins, are called per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, otherwise known as PFAS. So PFAS is a broad term that um, describes over 5,000 individual chemicals, basically. What is PFAS actually used for? Yeah, so um, PFAS chemicals um, are mainly, I mean, they they have a lot of applications and they are everywhere um, in like fast food packaging, um, in like photographic processing materials. Um, I guess they're really effective at resisting stains and heat and grease and water. Um, and so that's why they're used in these products. Um, things like non-stick cookware, um, waterproofing in clothing or on fabric, um, personal care products. Um, the main application historically, which their manufacturer has been banned um, now, but because of their persistent nature and they are resistant to environmental degradation, so they don't break down over time, they persist. Um they stick around for a long time, but firefighting foams in particular have been a big source of, of large quantities of these chemicals, 
particularly PFOS, um, which is one of the PFAS chemicals. I'm not going to say what the full name of the chemical is because I don't know how to pronounce it. I I wouldn't Um, either. But that's that's sort of one of the main sources of um, these chemicals into the environment. What are the supposed side effects of PFAS exposure in humans and animals? The research in this field is really emerging and um, we're really sort of only finding this stuff out now. But the main thing um, is that they act as endocrine disruptors, so they affect our hormone regulation. And, of course, hormone regulation is central for everything. And, yeah, things like reduced fertility, increased likelihood of cancer uh, in people, um, and in birds, uh, according to... So, like I said, the literature in this field is really just emerging, um, but they have been shown to correlate with poorer body condition um, and also um, affecting thyroid uh, hormone circulation. So the circulating thyroid hormones, it affects the, the quantities of them. That sounds pretty nasty. Yeah, I know, right? But as we said, you actually study little penguins in Tasmania. How do the different PFOS components get into the penguins. They don't eat fast food, do they? No, no, exactly. Well, I mean, I don't know, hey? Like, some of them are nesting pretty close to cities, so maybe their junk food is available to them. Makes sense. Um, I mean, uh, penguins, little penguins, they are the world's smallest species of penguin. They are an ideal um, species to work on as an indicator of overall coastal ecosystem health. Especially in Tasmania, they're found all around the state, all around the coastline. Um, They nest very, very close to, uh, they nest among the human wildlife interface. They nest very close. There's actually um, little penguin populations found within one kilometre of all southern Australian capital cities. They're exposed to urban disturbance, basically, is what I'm trying to say. And in terms of how they are coming into contact, how with PFAS chemicals, I don't really know, to be honest with you. So my research has showed that they do have these chemicals in their uh, nesting material, in their feces, and also in their blood. Probably most likely because they are a marine predator, they are consuming, uh, the fish that they're consuming have these PFAS chemicals, and those fish are probably consuming that from sediments or whatever. So, you know... These chemicals um, are capable of long-range transport and then they uh, stay in the water column or um, the sediments and then they enter the food chain and then they just bioaccumulate in higher predators, basically. So um, I would assume for little penguins, they are consuming the PFAS through their food. But also, you know, they excavate their burrows. So if it's in the groundwater, they potentially could be consuming it in some way but yeah that's what I would think. Your field work sounds like a lot of fun going all around Tasmania and catching little penguins mm. um, and in addition of course it's very useful research but sounds like great fun. So how did you catch the penguins? Was that tricky? No so I mean they're the world's smallest penguin so they're relatively so easy to exactly. <laughs> no they weigh about 1.1 kilograms or you know 1200 grams or something like this um, so they're not overly big 
and uh, I was mainly working on breeding birds that are inside their nesting burrows during the day because I've done nighttime work in the past and I'm too old for that now. So now I only work during the day. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Generally, little penguins are out foraging during the daylight and then they come in at nighttime under the cover of darkness. But of course, if they're breeding, if they are incubating eggs or with chicks, they'll be in their burrows. So you just basically lay on the ground, put your hand in the nest and hope that there's not a snake inside. <laughs> has this happened? I know of people that that has happened to. It's never happened to me, but one time I put my hand in a burrow and there was a beehive inside. <sighs> oh no. Yeah, I had to go to hospital. I had like had like over 30 stings in my hand. Wow. Yeah. That is serious. I'm glad you're not allergic. No. <laughs> That's intense. I was about to suggest maybe you should do the same work in New Zealand, then at least you wouldn't have the snake problem. Right. But, um, yeah, that is true. Still yeah, I'm sure issue. still there. <laughs> so then and ideally there's a penguin in there breeding, so you just basically pull it out and then take your samples and um, put it, it back in. The, exactly. And so the first part of the study, I basically conducted a little bit of a pilot study where I collected soil samples from within the burrows that had penguin poo in the soil. I also collected sediments around the colonies and water because I wanted to see doing this kind of ecotoxicology analysis is very expensive, especially on the biological samples. And so I didn't want to waste the effort and the disturbance to the bird of collecting blood if there was no reason for that. So I did this pilot beforehand, which was actually funded by the WDA, which was great. Oh, nice. (laughs) And then because that showed that there were these chemicals in their soils, in the nesting material, then I collected blood, a small blood sample from the birds and um, separated it and I tested the serum for um, PFAS chemicals. And did you get to see new places of Tasmania, like new areas you've never been to before? Yeah, yep, yep. I spent some time in the Bass Strait Islands and um, yeah, I've just sort of been all around the coast. So I've been very lucky So you sampled all those penguins, a lot of work, I'm pretty sure. What did you find in the end? I looked at the soils and there was PFAS chemicals everywhere, basically. I looked at 21 different nesting sites and 20 of those sites had PFAS chemicals in them. So I mentioned that there there are over 5,000 chemicals. We didn't test for that many. We tested for 33 that, you know, because... The procedures to do this, it's still developing. Um, So we tested for 33 different chemicals. We found six chemicals, three of which are listed as um, POPs, which stands for Persistent Organic Pollutants. So those three chemicals have been largely banned from manufacture for many years from a lot of countries around the world due to their known harmful effects on on life. In the bloods, so I tested 40 birds, 40 individuals, and 37 birds had PFAS chemicals in them, which is pretty sad. That's indeed, it's pretty bad for the penguins, good for your study. But anyway, (laughs) did you find a difference in the levels in penguins depending on where they lived? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah, so as I mentioned earlier that, you know, these birds are one of the very few species of seabirds that can successfully nest in along this human wildlife interface. And the, there are colonies found very close to cities. Um, and Which that, is remarkable, right? So it is. I mean, I find, it, I find it amazing. And that's yeah. kind of part of the reason that I, you know, have wanted to look into this when I, you know, think of marine predators and 
their health, you can't not think of pollutants, basically. And so I was really interested to look at the level of pollutants in the birds in relation to um, the urban disturbance around their breeding sites. And so I looked at a few different things. I looked at, I, I measured total road length within one kilometre of the site. I looked at whether or not there was industry um, within a 10 kilometre radius and whether or not there was residential zones. And these just kind of give some kind of indicator of anthropogenic stress and found that the levels of pollutants in the soils and in the birds had a correlation to urbanization you know to road length around the site which is it's not a surprise but um it is cool to show that in numbers and and definitely um of of the the samples that i looked at pfas chemicals in their blood um birds that are nesting very close to a city um or a port have have substantially higher levels than other birds so you know yeah these birds are persisting in the human wildlife interface but at what cost kind of thing you know like obviously their health is perturbed in some way yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense so do you think it's worth giving out a recommendation for penguin little penguin prime estate where they should settle down and where well yeah i mean there's this amazing like famous um, conservation story at Phillip Island Nature Parks where they basically bought back all of these houses in the Summerland Peninsula and demolished them over time to make that penguin real estate, which is like, when does that ever happen for wildlife conservation? You know, it was such a standout story. But uh, I mean, that would be amazing, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> we can't have it all. That's, yeah, that's true. exactly. And do you have any idea if, um, or did you look at the correlation between the health of the penguins and um, the, the PFAS components or their levels? Yeah. You know, because I was collecting blood from the birds, I was able to look at some hematological indicators of health. So I was able to look at pack cell volume um, and total protein and to look at white blood cell profiles. Sorry, what is packed cell volume? Packed cell volume, otherwise known as hematocrit. And yeah, so I looked at, because yeah, I had a blood smear, so I was able to look at white blood cell profiles to get an idea of like chronic stress. Found that increased toxicity, birds with higher levels of toxicity were in poorer body condition. They had higher um, hematocrit or, or pack cell volume, higher levels of total protein. And in terms of their heterophil to lymphocyte ratio, which is, you know, indicates chronic stress, um, the trend wasn't totally clear, but it's pretty early days in this analysis. Um, so I've still got a lot of work to do. In terms of like endocrine disruption or, you know, reduced fertility, that is kind of out of the scope of my project unfortunately but certainly that's where you want to be looking at I guess this initial first step is confirming that they do have these pollutant loads and now the next step would be to try and work out what does that actually mean to the health of the birds I forgot to ask earlier what is the conservation status of the little penguins according to the IUCN they are listed as least concern uh, and that is due to their very wide distribution around southern australia from like perth to mid new south wales and also parts of new zealand but we actually know 
very little about their population status as a whole. There's been localized declines reported across all of their distribution in, in, you know, small populations, including entire extinctions of colonies. But I guess um, the nature of these birds um, makes them a little bit harder to accurately estimate their population. Although they have a breeding season that's relatively synchronous, it does substantially vary throughout the year. So um, it's hard to get an idea of actually how many birds are breeding, basically. So to answer your question, <laughs> they are listed as least concern, but this is on a 30-plus-year-old population estimate, and, you know, a lot has changed in three decades. Of course, yeah. yeah. And it's I guess there is a tendency to underestimate the status of local populations, right? When you just sum up the whole population or the whole species, you're like, yeah, whatever, 10,000 sounds fine, but that's exactly. not what it's like in reality, right? Exactly. And, you know, the, the reality is like... Tasmania is thought to have more than 65% of the Australian population breeding in its territory. And all of the historical population data from Tasmania is based around like a once-off assessment from a long time ago where someone went out on a boat to all these islands and went at one point in time and counted all the birds present. You know, like what about all the birds that were out at sea that day and came back the next day? Do you know what I mean? So there really hasn't been any because politically they're considered least concern there really hasn't been any um dedicated effort to to actually establish a population estimate overall yeah and it would be very difficult to do as well so you found urbanization or the proximity to cities and towns is one of the factors that basically drives the levels of PFAS in those penguins. Did you find any other factors that influenced how much PFAS they had accumulated? You know, as I mentioned, it's pretty early in this analysis and it's all pretty fresh, but certainly the thing that has stood out is that male birds have much higher levels of uh, PFAS uh, concentrations than the female birds. Um, Are they more into junk food? (laughs) maybe well and that's it because the first thing i thought was males are bigger so it's relative to their body size but after reading the the scant literature that there is available on pfas toxicity but also just pops in general it is a consistent pattern with birds and it's thought that females excrete a lot of their pollutants in the eggshell um and so that's an interesting finding so what I'm doing now is trying to collect um, cold or abandoned eggs to look at concentrations in their in their eggshell membranes. Oh, interesting. Mm. And it would be in the eggshells, not in the, the egg content? I don't know, hey. I mean, yeah, that is a good question. I'm not too sure. Eggs explode after a while. And so, Things you learn during a PhD, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly, right? So... Yeah, I had a lot more eggs last summer and uh, they all exploded. So now the eggs that I am collecting, I actually just blow them and I blow out the contents. But this is a really good point. Maybe I should at least preserve the contents. Or free. Actually, no, I did. I blew, I blew them this summer and I froze the contents and the eggshells separately. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah then you've got everything. <laughs> So what do you think? Where's your research going from here? You talked about the eggshells. Um, what else is happening behind the scenes you're, you're planning? So this is just forming sort of one one part of, of my PhD research, which is, you know, looking at different aspects of, of their health. Um, but I'm really keen to try and 
understand if I can try and work out is it having any kind of impact on them so I guess first of all I'm interested in looking at eggshell to get an idea of how much uh, pollutants are in the eggshell penguins undergo what is known as a catastrophic molt where they molt their entire plumage in one go and that's a really opportune time to measure pollutants basically so I'm interested in maybe pursuing that to see if they are able to excrete some of these pollutants because if they're not, if I, you know, find it in their blood post-malt, then obviously that's going to have a higher impact. It's going to accumulate in their bodies over time. Yeah, that's kind of my next steps. Uh, I'm going to follow the investigation a little bit more, but also I'm quite keen to try and understand any kind of health impacts that these chemicals have on the birds. That would be amazing if you, yeah. could, if you could find that out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Nice. Sounds like there's still a lot to do. There is a lot to do. <laughs> Always. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of daunting, you know, daunting for the birds. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, at least someone is looking at it, right? Yeah. Would be even yeah. worse if no one was. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for being my guest on the show and chatting about your research, Mel. No worries. It was fabulous. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Wildlife Health Talks. We will be back with a new story next time. Bye for now.